This is the Shift Podcast. This is Martin Strong in for Shane. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the biggest search for the Loch Ness Monster in decades is about to get underway. But will it be a waste of time? Professor Neil Gemmel, a geneticist from New Zealand's University of Otago, tells us about his research into Loch Ness. We hear about the DNA found in the lake and why he thinks the Loch Ness Monster could be a giant eel. Hank the Hacker is back for our Summer of Cyber Safety and gives us tips on how to keep your kids safe while gaming and how to secure your smartphone. Are you okay with animals on planes? How about working from home? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. We're talking about the Loch Ness Monster. And you know, the first sighting of the Loch Ness Monster was in the 6th century. At least it's the first example of someone talking about it because it was mentioned in a book written in 565. It was uh, mentioned as a water beast. But to be fair, there were a lot of water beasts in literature back then. And a lot of skeptics say uh, the only real sightings that are taken seriously happened uh, from about the 1930s on. But the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster has really captured the attention of humans in the last century. And this summer, the hunt for Nessie is being organized by the Loch Ness Center in the village of Drumnadrokit in the Scottish Highlands. They have a research team called Loch Ness Exploration and a lot of eager volunteers who will join the search on the weekend of August 26th. So could the Loch Ness Monster be real? One theory that actually does get some traction is that it's a giant eel. Well, Professor Neil Gemmel is a geneticist at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and he has done some extensive studies of what this monster could be if it existed. And Professor Gemmel is here with us all the way from New Zealand. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem, Martin. Lovely to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I guess it's winter there. It's the middle of the day where it's summer here in the middle of the night. So it's kind of... Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, no, it's it's the middle of winter and uh, it's showing every signs of, um, of being pretty cold out. Oh, really? <laughs> well, that's good to know. There's something kind of comforting that there is a winter that's going to come around for us and, and, and the summer here is going to come around for you. So let's talk about uh, the Loch Ness Monster. You did a really interesting study back in 2019 and it was all based on DNA in the water, which, yeah. is, which is kind of a new way of looking at this kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, so it was quite a novel approach uh, at the time, and, and uh, it was really um, uh, I guess inspired by the fact that we had been using this new technology of environmental DNA to, um, to explore what was in the waters around coastal New Zealand, and uh, we were encouraged that when we used that technology, we found species that we knew about based on diver surveys or... Uh, fishing surveys, um, and, but we also found some other species, uh, fish species that um, were very elusive and uh, very rarely seen or caught. Um, and so we w- started to wonder whether we could use this technology to go hunting for things that um, uh, were very rarely seen or perhaps um, not known. 
And uh, I happened to be on a social media conversation with somebody who had written a book called Hunting Monsters. And I, I, I sort of, you know, cheekily asked the question whether um, they were aware of anyone that had been using this new technology, environmental DNA, to, to go looking for such creatures. And, and just, to, just to clarify for your listeners, environmental DNA is, is literally just, uh, if you like, um, animal dandruff, probably the best <laughs> way of describing it. Uh, so you can imagine that if you're moving through the water, um, there's little flakes of skin, there might be bits of hair or what have you that are that are left um, in the water through your passing. Uh, that's the same for fish and, and for many other animals. And in actual fact, for some very small animals, you know, we, we, would, we would collect them in their entirety and then crush them up and sequence them. And we can get uh, a phenomenal amount of information about what species are present within a body of water from a sample of as, as small as, say, a litre. So um, really, really powerful technology for, for better understanding our natural world. And so we decided that we'd do this project linking the, the, this hunt for a monster uh, to showcase the power of environmental DNA for better understanding our natural world. And so just to be clear, I'm very quite sceptical about the, the idea of a monster, but I was always delighted with the prospect that I could be wrong. Uh, so we went out and we went looking for this thing, um, the environmental DNA, and we, we surveyed Loch Ness uh, at, at, at several hundred sites over the space of about two weeks in the height of summer uh, back in 2018, and then we presented those data uh, in 2019. And um, as you've alluded, uh, one of the things that we sort of said was still a possibility were, were giant eels. We went through uh, various hypotheses like this giant marine reptile, the idea there might be a plesiosaur somehow left in Loch Ness. Well, we, we, we couldn't find any evidence of reptile DNA, let alone anything that could be related to a marine reptile. So, so we said, well, that probably wasn't plausible. And then we went looking for various giant fish that some people had suggested might be uh, 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 an explanation for the Loch Ness Monster, things like giant catfish, um, sturgeons, those sorts of things that you'd be familiar with in Canada. Um, we didn't find those either. But we did find an awful lot of eel DNA, but um, whether they were giant eels or just ordinary eels, based on the technology that we had, we couldn't tell. So I guess it, it, it all hinges on whether you have that DNA uh, information in the bank. So if the, if the Loch Ness Monster was this sort of singular beast, you wouldn't have its DNA really on file. Well, that's, that's a very good point, Martin. Um, so obviously, if there was an extinct um, plesiosaur there, nobody's got a plesiosaur sequence. Um, but we can make a pretty good guess of what that sequence would look like. Oh. And, and so again, we don't we don't necessarily have to have the sequences of every species, um, but if we've got representative sequences for most things, then we can say, uh, based on this book of life, uh, we find this DNA sequence, and that that's a frog sequence, or that one's more related to um, a, a a crocodile sequence, or that one's more related to a mammal sequence. So we we might not precisely be able to see, say what species it is, but we should be able to say what it is most like. Um, and so that was sort of the, 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 the process we went through. Now for, for about 3,000 different things that we found in Loch Ness, um, a good number of those we could identify, uh, maybe not the species, but down to um, the next level up, the genus or family. Um, so these are the orders of, uh, of hierarchical classification they used to describe nature. Um, so we could we could figure out that you know what we might not know what fish species it was, but we could say oh it's a fish. Um, I know that doesn't sound particularly exciting, but um, <laughs> as, it turns, as it turns out for the northern hemisphere, we've got the sequences for most of the fish. So in Loch Ness, there are 13 fish species that we found, 
and all 13 of those were known. And there were two that we found in the lock that uh, occur in other parts of Scotland but had not been described there previously. These are species that may have been introduced there or um, some of them are actually species that are used for bait. Um, so it could have been that. Uh, and so we built up quite a catalogue, quite a list of species that were present in Loch Ness. Um, yeah, but not very, not, nothing, nothing that you know was was particularly exciting from a sort of you know monster centric <laughs> point of view, barring these eels. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends if you find the eels kind of exciting because uh, these eels that you described, uh, you said that some fishermen have said that these eels are as as wide as their legs. They are big, yeah, massive that's the, things. That's a, that's the story that's told. Okay, so so here's the, here's the problem with that, Martin, is that nobody's got a specimen they've ever handed in, and nobody's got a photograph or or anything like that. Nobody's caught one of these giant eels that I'm aware of. Um, but you do hear these anecdotal stories. In fact, actually, for Canadian listeners, you know, there was a Canadian couple who who claimed they saw a, a giant eel in Loch Ness. Uh, so that's one of the one of the over thousand sightings of, of monsters, um, and they claimed it was uh, something in the vicinity of twenty to thirty feet in length. Okay, so that's a very big animal. Um, uh, now, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying they're, they're lying, but, you know, water can do funny things and you can see things make things look like they're much bigger than they are um, through various lensing effects. But let's take that as, a, as, as one uh, piece of, of data. Then there's other people who say, and, you know, they, you get the odd email when you've um, done a study like this, um, and some of these emails are odd. Uh, but here's somebody who claimed that you know they were related to a professional diver. They're dead now, but that professional diver had dived in Loch Ness, saw giant eels, and never dived the waters again. He was that scared. Um, so that's an anecdotal observation too, or a piece of information. Uh, perhaps one of the best is actually the newspaper story. You can actually find this on file in the Inverness, I think it's the Courier, so their local newspaper. And in 1986, give or take, maybe it was 87, mid-80s, um, there was, a, there was a power plant on the side of Loch Ness at a place called Foyers, and the claim was that uh, power station went down and had to shut down the aluminium smelter that was attached to it because the um, power station got clogged full of giant eels. Oh, really? And they're talking, now in the newspaper, they're talking about these, these workmen cutting out these eels from the turbines, and they're saying that, you know, they're as thick as a person's leg. Now, that's, now a European eel doesn't get that big. I mean, it might be as thick as your arm, and it might get to about a metre in length, but that would be considered to be an extraordinarily large eel. And when I was at Loch Ness, and people were asking me about these giant eels, I said, well, I don't know how big European eels get. And a guy at the back of the room goes, 1.03 metres. And I was like, gee, that's really precise. And it turns out he was the European liquid holder for um, European common eel. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, so I think a, a definitive source on the matter uh, so the question, of course, is you know, how big can these eels get? And, 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 and the answer is we just don't know. Um, and most eels would go out to the ocean and die, and reproduce and die uh, at some point in their lifespan. And the, one of the arguments for how these eels could get very large is that they forego reproduction. They just stay in the lock and they just you know, hover up, hoover up food and they grow to very large size over, over, over a period of perhaps 100 years. They may be very, very long-lived animals. Um, and, and there is, you know, in other systems, we know that there are animals that 
um, when given appropriate amounts of food and space, can grow to very large size. Some fish will grow to very large size if given the opportunity. Right. Um, so maybe maybe eels do. But, you know, I, the, the short answer here, Martin, is that sadly, with that, as with many things to do with the Loch Ness monster myth, is that when we've gone looking for physical evidence of, of, a, of a creature, none has, none has been found. Um, you know, so our study went there, and initially we only went for a couple of weeks, um, but we didn't find anything. Um, and every study that has brought the latest technologies to Loch Ness has generally not found anything. We've used side-scanning sonar. It didn't necessarily find nothing, but uh, it found two detections, I think, over the course of um, more than a week, two weeks' worth of, of, of 20-odd boats coming up and down the loch. I think they found two signals that they couldn't explain. Okay, so that's... We'll take that as red. We don't know what that really means, but two signals they didn't ex- they couldn't explain. Maybe and they're quite large. Maybe there was, there was something that that was present there. Um, that uh, that could have been a monster or couldn't have been a monster. We didn't see it very regularly. They saw it just on two occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, other other projects that have gone using um, video and camera technologies, um, underwater drones. So you know, basically submarines that drive themselves around have not found anything there. So um, over, over the course of many decades now of people going to look, the, the, the definitive evidence has, has not um, been found. Right. Um, so that makes me highly sceptical. Um, but, of course, you know, not finding something doesn't mean that it's not yeah. present. Um, and and e- evidence of absence is not um, – absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as they say. So, so there's still room for people to believe. Yeah. Um, but – yeah, and uh, you've probably seen that photograph uh, a million times. There's that black and white photograph of the Loch Ness monster, grainy black and white. It kind of oh, the, the famous surgeon's photo, yes, and from it, 1934. Sort of, yeah, yeah, that one. And it, it sort of looks like a horse or something, or or maybe a you know like an ostrich or something with this long neck coming out of the water. When you see that photo. Um, as a man of science, what what do you think? Do you think it's it's not a real photo? I mean, it, it's nothing, or or does it intrigue you? Oh, so there's quite a backstory to that photo, which I think has, has been claimed as a hoax. Um, I mean, a, a number of number of people have made various assumptions about that photo. I mean, why you, when you when you that famous photo, many people go, "Oh, it's just the arm of a person swimming." Um, you know, maybe that's an explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, there's a backstory to this, um, and I'm no, I'm not not quite as um, down with the patter on who did what where uh, as some of my colleagues at Loch Ness are. But the basic the basic story goes is that there was um, there the, this, the surgeon's photo was a hoax that was um, put up by. Uh, various people who had been discredited earlier for um, their claims around Loch Ness Monster. And and the argument is that there's uh, some sort of plasticine model on top of a tin submarine. Um, you, can, you can Google this. There's quite a quite a good uh, backstory on this on, on the web. Um, and, and this apparently was a deathbed confession that was then relayed by a third party. So somebody who had been directly involved in the hoax uh, admitted on their deathbed that they, they had formulated this hoax and then passed on to a third party who has then um, uh, told this tale. Now, of course, you know, that's a bit, bit more of those sort of, you know, he said, she said, who, how can we verify any of this? Um, and there have been various claims and counterclaims that the story doesn't, um, doesn't ring true because 
the various things and um, uh, materials that uh, were described to craft this hoax, um, it was claimed didn't exist in 1930. So uh, anyway, yeah, if, you, if you want to Google it, um, search and photo hoax, um, you, you, there's, a, there's a phenomenal amount of web resources. In fact, I guess it's one of the things that's fascinating about Loch Ness Monster is, is how much has been written on this um, uh, and, and what the uh, varying theories are. And actually, if you look it up, you know, these, uh, the individual sightings of the Loch Ness Monster couldn't be more varied. You've got people that talk about it being scaly, others that talk about it being smooth. Um, some saying it's got a sort of snake neck, others saying it's got two humps. Um, you know, some people saying it looks like an overturned bathtub, others saying that it's, you know, uh, snake-like or eel-like and uh, you know so uh, the descriptions that people have made uh, would make you wonder whether they're all seeing the same thing um, and and what is driving their perception of what they've seen um, is, is it the various myths that they've heard about yeah um, or, is, or, or is it what they want to see is it what yeah. they've seen yeah that, um, that's a question can, yeah that's a question I have for you because you you are a man of science and you're you're attacking this from a very scientific percept, uh, perspective, but you were also featured on a, a travel channel documentary and people <laughs> love, they love to talk about it. They love to follow you around doing this kind of work. What is your theory about why the Loch Ness monster has captivated so many people for so long? See, that's a really fascinating question, Martin. And uh, I, I, I look, I just think we love a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, even as a man of science, I've, I've stood at the shores of Loch Ness and I looked out wistfully and, you know, I think, I think the notion that we might have a moment in time where we observe something that others have not, uh, the notion that we might, um, uh, you know, have an opportunity um, that, is, that is rarely afforded to others, uh, I think that captivates us, I think. I think that's why you know so many of us are, go out looking for anything. Um, it's, it's, that, it's that passion for discovery, that passion for adventure, um, and it sort of speaks to something very deeply um, embedded in the human psyche. I can't fully explain it, to be honest, Martin, but I do think that we're a curious species. I think we, we like to be intrigued, and the mystery is part of, of how we reconcile um, the, our place in the world, you know, and, and what helps keep us motivated to, to make more discoveries. Yeah, and I, and I guess the ocean and these these huge locks and and deep water is fascinating because there's pro- probably, you know this more than a lot of people, um, there is a lot of stuff down there that we just don't understand, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So Loch Ness is incredibly deep. Um, I mean, there are obviously deeper lakes in the world, but it's it's 200-odd metres deep, 220, um, 225. Um, and and it's, it's an interesting body of water uh, because it's highly tannic. So the um, best way to think about that is that uh, it's, it's like a, uh, it's like the water's a bit like a cup of tea. Um, it looks like a very weak green tea, but as you, because of that material that's in the water, it acts as a polarising filter, just like your sunglasses. So it cuts out the light, and so it gets very dark, very, very, sh- at very shallow depths. And so beyond about six or ten metres in Loch Ness, it's pitch black. So that's a really weird environment to be in. Um, so you haven't got these light-driven... Um, uh, systems where you've got 
uh, phytoplankton, which are then feeding other things, except in the shallows, down deep, it's chemically driven. So there's methane that's uh, uh, erupting from the bottom from decomposing organisms. And there are bacteria that are using that, and those bacteria are feeding other things. That um, and, and so there are completely different food webs that are all operating down there. So we found some pretty pretty weird um, nematode worms and rotifers and various other things down there that uh, weren't completely unique to science because uh, previous studies had, had identified them physically from sediment samples and various other things, but genetically they were, they were reasonably uh, unknown. Um, and as you know, all the deep lakes are like this. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's plenty to be discovered out there and that's what certainly keeps me in a job and keeps me motivated to go out and do these sorts of projects. Well, I wish you luck. Professor Neil Gemmel is a geneticist at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Uh, you've uh, been studying all sorts of uh, uh, life under the water, and especially with a little bit of an eye to the Loch Ness Monster. And I hope <laughs> if the Loch Ness Monster ever turns up, I hope it's on your watch. Thanks very much, Martin. I'll keep an eye out for you. This is The Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me! Hank the Hacker is Hank Fordham, cybersecurity researcher and forensic an- analyst. And uh, Hank is with us now. Hi, Hank. How are you? Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So uh, we're going to talk uh, cyber hacks. And it seems like every few months there's another one, you know, Amazon or all these different things. But uh, last month it was revealed that nearly 4,000 people who use Roblox had their personal information leaked. Uh, first of all, uh, Roblox is very popular. But for people who don't know, uh, Roblox, what, what is Roblox? Well, and, you know, just to start off, boy, are you ever right about the the constant cat and mouse game. Yeah. Um, always something happening. Uh, but Roblox, it's, and I'm sure a lot of parents right now are, are like screaming, you know, I know what this is because yeah. they've probably paid for a few uh, <laughs> Robux in the past. But Roblox is just an online game and the, the main demographic of which is aimed at, at children um, so it's like a, a massive online multiplayer game where they can go and communicate. And um, there's also kind of a, a sub-community with Roblox where um, people can develop their own content and they can get paid in some cases for developing this content. So it's it's very appealing for, um, you know, especially for youth that are trying to explore uh, an entrepreneurial kind of mindset um, to become engaged in being a developer for this platform. And um, so what happened here is uh, there was a, a gathering for Roblox, Roblox Developer Con, and um, anyone who was present at that that event would have had their information leaked. And, um, you know, me and Shane have spoke so many times before about 
how hackers will kind of, they'll get some information or uh, they get into a system and they just kind of sit there, sometimes an average of three years before we're really aware of anything that happened. And, and that's that's the case here with, um, it was just under 4,000 accounts, including uh, you know, email, phone number, everything down to, uh, in some cases, their T-shirt size. Um, and the original breach was on the 18th of December in 2020. Uh, but the information only just became available three years later on the 18th of July, 2023. And, um, you know, as scary as this is, especially being a parent myself, I, I understand the you know, the fear that comes along with thinking that some of your child's data might be compromised. Um, I guess my my good news is that there's a few steps that parents can take, and there's uh, some advice as well that I have um, for parents to keep their children a little bit safer online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, before we get to that, because that's really important, obviously, um, what is it about this information? Like, so somebody has your email, they have your date of birth and your phone numbers and even your T-shirt sizes, as this one turns out. On the surface, it, I, I'm just wondering, how do hackers use that to target people? You know, it, that, that's a great question because on the surface, a lot of this information really looks benign. Like mm-hmm. you see a T-shirt size and um, maybe some random email list and you might think as far as, Oh, okay, so they got some emails to send their spam to. But the, the reality here is um, this information is like gold dust to hackers. Or what I'm going to say is that it's gold dust to cyber criminals. And the reason for that is because now they can develop pretexting campaigns where, you know, they, they know that the email right here that they have, this list of 4,000 emails, they're all interested in Roblox they all um they're all developers uh they know you know first names and last names and they even know phone numbers so they can take this information as well as other information that some of these people might have been sharing online and create a fairly effective social engineering attack and we we might not have even seen you know the final you know severity or, or the full results of this compromise yet, because um, if some of these users who were were compromised or were were exposed exposed in this breach, uh, if they become a target, then um, that could also you know that could result in something even bigger happening. So likely they would use this information to kind of make it seem like they know you and you would feel comfortable because they seem to know you. And, and that's when they would uh, try to get money or something. Yeah. It's an ugly thought, but like best case scenario, they're going to use the emails for, you know, phishing and, um, and scams and, and just spam emails. But uh, worst case scenario is, you know, the, the bad and the truly ugly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this one is really scary because Roblox uh, has a lot of kids who use it. And uh, we Mm -hmm. were mentioning, and kids are probably kind of naive 
about uh, giving out information. And obviously, it's a good idea to communicate with your kids. But you, you have some uh, tips for parents on keeping your kids safe. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, these, I feel like these tips are important because some of these platforms even kind of encourage kids to share their information. And again, I, I lean towards probably a benign piece of data, but um, something as far as a t-shirt size, uh, just so that they can order custom t-shirts or swag or whatever, which I'm not about to say, don't let your kid order swag. Um, I'll go, go hard, but uh, some tips that I have, um, I just have some like five main tips that uh, being a father my, myself, I think these these are the five big pointers for me. Um, the first one being talking openly with your child about their online activity. So teaching uh, your kid about their online reputation and how they should be careful about how they interact with people and, and represent themselves on the internet. Mm-hmm. I, I remember my dad, uh, he used to give my brother Randy and I a talk all the time about protecting our online reputations. Um, but keep screens and, and devices like computers or whatever in an area where you can see them. And I know immediately someone's thinking, well, what about the tablet? <laughs> Uh, but for mobile devices, you can actually just forget the Wi-Fi passcode. Like, so you can hold down or go to the settings icon and you can forget and remove that Wi-Fi passcode. And the the important thing here is that it not only makes it so that, you know, children can't go online without you knowing, but um, it, it also keeps your device much safer from hackers while you're in a public space. Um, I I might even go as far in some cases, uh, depending on your discretion, to check browser histories. Um, Knowing your parental controls is a really big one. So blocking certain search results and certain websites like Omegle is a really big one. Um, Being share aware. So just not sharing uh, certain pictures, your name, phone number, a home address or the name of your school and stuff like that. And then um, last and not least, keep control of your family's digital footprint. So uh, one of the biggest things I'm, I, I think is like keeping locations private. We, we all know about Snapchat and all that where, you know, anywhere you are, your kid's phone could literally be advertising their location to the entire world through Snapchat. Uh, So just little things like that, being aware of settings, um, being aware of things being shared online, and obviously not included in the list here, but I'm always going to say it, enable two-factor authentication. Right. Right. So going back to location, uh, you say Snapchat, if, if your settings are not properly set, uh, Snapchat is broadcasting your location. What other, does Instagram do that? What other uh, platforms actually advertise where you are, your location? So that's the scary thing is a lot of problem or, or, or a lot of parents are probably thinking immediately like, oh yeah, I know about the Snapchat one, but 
you know, you can even have um, make a post on Instagram or on Facebook and it can be tagged with a location, in some cases, a, an exact location, depending on your privacy settings. And so, again, going back to uh, speaking openly with your, your children about their online activity, you know, like what social media websites are you using? If and and obviously, you know, go as as far as you can. Um, but, you know, in terms of, OK, we're using Facebook, Snapchat and Instagram. Let's make sure that we go look at the privacy settings together and understand um, which information is being shared and to whom it's being shared with. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I guess um, and, and passwords, uh, obviously, are important. And I, I know with my kids, uh, when they were younger, um, th they didn't really care about passwords. They always made them really easy. You know, it's funny because, uh, and, and especially as a cybersecurity uh, specialist, you can look back at me as a kid and I didn't care about my password either. I'll, I'll say it right here. My password as a kid was all me one, two, three. Right. <laughs> so it, I think that with that in mind, it's important um, if your children, you know, if if they're not able to develop a strong password or it might even be better to just take in what I do is use a password manager and generate passwords on your own. And this also allows you to change passwords on uh, a, a normal basis, like say every 90 days. So that if a compromise like the one in in the case with Roblox happens, um, if there's a password included, for example, then no one is able to access their account and make purchases or empty any items that you might have actually put your own hard-earned dollars into. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Hank the Hacker, cybersecurity expert. Uh, and uh, we got a text. Angel wants me to ask you about true smart homes and voice commands and smart door locks and those kind of things. When you have, you know, smart homes, uh, all that kind of stuff where, you know, voice activated things. Is that a concern in, in your world? Do you think that that's going to be a problem? You know, I, that what a good question. It, my biggest two people, and this is coming from someone who's actually worked on security engagements with smart homes before, um, but with these devices like Google Home or, or your Alexa or, or Echo Dot or whatever, um, place them away from the gaming environment. Like, so if they have a computer room, uh, that device shouldn't be in the computer room. And, and I say this because... If you leave the device alone, people can actually trigger the device over um, a chat room, for example. So if they know they your your child has one in the room, they can actually make purchases in some cases. So keep it away from the gaming room um, and keep it away from Windows if possible. Because um, and you can actually look this up on YouTube you can send commands to a Google Home with a laser. Uh, so if you can keep it away from Windows and out of gaming rooms, that would be the two biggest pieces of advice I can give. 
Wow, that's that's frightening. <laughs> that someone with a, a laser would go through the window. Um, and and what are some other things that people need to know about it? I mean, it, for a while, nobody seems to worry about this anymore. But for a while, it, it seemed like the camera on, say, you have an iMac in the kitchen or something, or a computer with a with a camera that's installed in it. Um, how how important is it to make sure that that is secure? I'll tell you right now, coming from a hacker, my I have a laptop next to me and the webcam is taped right now as we speak. So um, while you can, you know, you can take steps uh, and, and you especially should take steps to install things like antivirus um, and maybe it's also a good idea at the end of the day to turn off your laptop or turn off your computer if that's permittable, uh, but, you know, and I love how basic this advice is going to be, but just grab a piece of tape and throw it over that webcam. You can actually, if you're like, if you don't want to make your laptop look super ugly with a piece of tape over the webcam, um, you can buy a webcam cover on online and they're really nice. It just slides out of the way and it'll slide over your webcam to keep it covered. And it's like, I, you know, I hate to give that advice because it basically says, no one's safe, but um, if a hacker does it, and I'm pretty sure there's a picture out there somewhere of Mark Zuckerberg doing it, then um, I think the rest of us should too. Right. And so what's the general general idea of, of somebody hacking into your camera? What, what do they want? What do they do? Well, this, again, it goes from the good, the bad, and the truly ugly. You get people warning someone like, um, like my case where you had with the Nest cameras and I was connecting and warning people and it actually landed me on Dr. Phil, believe it or not. But um, in, you know, in the bad, you might get someone that's just there to troll or they're just there for um, for fun or something. And the truly ugly, uh, you know, be creative. It can go all the way from financial fraud to um, you know, the theft of personal personally identifiable information and that's one of the biggest reasons that i say um cover your webcam or turn your device off at the end of the day if you're able to and if you're if you're worried as well about your phone um just you know make sure you're keeping your phone up to date and don't download uh, apps from unknown sources um, and you should be okay Right. And and so you actually hacked into people's cameras to kind of warn them how easy it was. Uh, regretfully so. I I did it. It was a project in 2018 and I was trying to warn Google about um a vulnerability in their services that allowed people to log into uh security cameras and thermostats actually. It, there was even a feature that in some cases allowed you to unlock the smart home remotely. And so I was trying to warn everyone and warn Google about this. Um, and it eventually landed me on, on Dr. Phil with, um, you know, rest in peace. He just passed away recently, but I got to go on there with Kevin Mitnick and, and that'll be something I'll never forget. Wow. Very cool. And in a minute, in the minute we have left, what's the one thing people should do right now with their computers just to make it safer? Unplug it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
honestly, if I only had a minute to tell my dad like what to do to be safer, I would say just for the sake of it, change your password, enable two-factor authentication, and uh, use a VPN. And then I would have to explain what a VPN is to my dad. (laughs) (laughs) And that would take some time. (laughs) We actually went over that a couple weeks ago, but I'm sure we'll touch on it again soon. Yeah, well, Hank the Hacker, I love asking you any question because usually... If I usually if I say, is this a concern? You usually have some sort of uh, crazy thing about how it's a totally a concern. <laughs> so there you know are what, what I'm that? trying to think now of how we can have always a solution as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's like there are no dumb questions, I guess, in cybersecurity because it, I love it. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much. Always, always fun to talk to you, Hank. Thank you, Martin. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Okay, Ryan O'Donnell. Are you okay with animals on planes? Uh, I got to be honest. Not really. Really? No, no. If there's, if they can be safely transported in the, uh, like the belly of the plane, absolutely fine. Absolutely. But the tiny little like rat dogs or anything like that, anything that could fit in like a handbag, right? I don't think should ever be near passengers on a plane. Like I don't, I don't like, it's just, yeah, keep it away. I look, I love dogs. Just not when I'm trapped inside of a tube in the sky. You know what right. I mean? I, I've never sat beside a dog on a plane ever, but our dog Gallup uh, comes from India and we adopted her and this organization would find volunteers to fly these dogs to Canada. And uh, I was really surprised that Gallup flew in a little, in a, like a little cage, like a, almost like a, a suitcase cage Gallup was really small at the time, uh, but was in the cabin of the plane. It was sitting on a seat on the plane. And I would have loved to have sit, sat near little Gallup on a plane. It would have been fun. But, you know. Uh, yeah, that's cute. You see, that's that's amazing. But I sat next to a dog on a plane for the first time, the last time I flew home from Ottawa. And it was fine until the owner got up to go to the bathroom. And much like when you leave an anxious dog home for the day when you go to work, yeah, and you don't know, but the dog barks for six hours when yeah. you're gone. It doesn't relax. Dog, yeah, the dog barks for the whole five, ten minutes that the, the guy was in the bathroom. And it felt like an eternity. And I know this is so this is so nitpicky and, and I'm totally overreacting, but I still feel like even though the dog was pretty small, it's just weird to me that you can bring an animal to have on your lap with you while you're in an airplane on, the, on a six-hour flight. You know, that just for some reason, that's really weird to me. Yeah, and I would think if you go to the bathroom, you have to take the dog to the bathroom with you. Yeah, leaving it alone. I wonder if he he was in front the seat in front of me. So I wonder if he asked the um, oh right the the person beside him if it was okay to do that. But still. Yeah. yeah. But the question about animals on a plane makes you wonder why is that animal on the plane? Um, 
you know, dogs I can understand, you know, because people want to travel with their dogs. I, you know, I always thought that dogs had to be in the cargo part of the plane. But what about, you know, other animals? Like there are planes that carry horses in the cargo hold. And it's like, why do you need to, you know, fly a horse around the world? Seems, seems kind of wrong to me. I don't know. Uh, but uh, this is kind of an interesting situation. You've heard of snakes on the plane, but what, what, what about this? The bear has escaped from its crate in a cargo hold on board an Iraqi aircraft as it was due to Dubai Airport. Specialist authorities from the UAE were called in to sedate and remove the animal from the plane. Transport procedures for the bear had been approved by the International Air Transport Association. Iraq's Prime Minister has ordered an investigation. Crikey. Uh, that from Sky News. Yeah, it was a bear on a plane. Yeah. And a video clip circulating on social media showed the plane's captain apologizing to passengers for uh, last Friday's takeoff delay because of the, of the bear's escape from its crate in the cargo hold. At least it wasn't in the cabin. Uh, an Iraqi Airways official confirmed to the Associated Press on Sunday that the bear was, in fact, being transported to the Iraqi capital. And this is the creepy part. The official, who spoke on condition of anonymity because he's not authorized to speak about the matter publicly, declined to name the animal's owner. But keeping predatory animals as pets in Iraq, especially in Baghdad, has become very popular among, guess who? The wealthy. See, I could, that, that is 100% a pet bear. That, like, there's, it's absolutely a pet bear. And here's the thing. You can't have a pet bear. <laughs> I know I don't think you can have a pet bear. But it's kind of like uh, having a pet tiger. You know, the tiger might be cool. But then one day it'll decide to rip your face off. Because it's a freaking tiger. Yeah. Bears fall into the same category, I would say. So uh, I, I, I wish that bear finds a better home probably very welcome in our massive forests here in Canada. Yeah, it's a, and it's a classic it's a classic thing like tigers. Like people go, "Wow, you can get a tiger and they're not that expensive. It's like 2000 bucks or something." And then you have it for a while and you realize how much it eats and what it requires to take care of it and then you don't want it anymore. And then it gets stuck at some horrible thing. As we all I remember the Tiger King that show that it's so yep. it's so strange that that was for a, a brief moment in our culture that was the most Everything. talked about thing. Yep, it was. We I guess it. it was a COVID thing. Oh yeah, it was all COVID. We needed that. We needed that unbelievable distraction, and just to look at something so monumentally bizarre, and mm -hmm. as a society go, this is weird. And I th and I'm, I'm grateful. Anytime I rewatch Tiger King, which I did last year, uh, I, I get transported to Zoom dates and uh, uncertain nights. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. And, and moving on, we got a text earlier because it's Good News Tuesday um, uh, from Rosie who said she found a $50 bill uh, while walking home from work. And she attributed it to another reason not to work from home or house arrest, as she likes to call it. Uh, and that brings us to our next, are you okay? Are you okay with working from home? 
Well, this is interesting because for uh, for me, I'm I'm home right now, and yeah. both you and Jono are in studio. And here's the here's the thing: I'm a little jealous. I think it would be fun to be sitting on the other side of the table, you know, be able yeah. to feed off the in person energy. Mm-hmm. On the other side, though, when the show's done, I brush my teeth and I'm in bed in less than 15 minutes. And that right there is a is is a is is the best part of working from home. Is just at least for shift work, you know, doing the late night stuff. Uh, and for me, it's uh, I've only ever done the shift from home. I have never done the shift in studio, still to this day. Uh, and uh, it's a. It, 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 I, I would love to try it, and I'm sure we'll be able to make it happen. Uh, but, uh, I'm so comfortable working from home that I honestly feel like I'd have like culture shock. I've had, I'd go into my body would reject it at least at first. Uh, so there's pros and cons. I miss being able to interact with people face to face. I really, really enjoy being able to go to bed almost immediately after my shift is over. Right. I, I, I agree hundred percent. It's pros and cons on what you can't beat working from home. You know, you don't, you just can kind of roll out of bed and get to work and all that stuff. But at the same time, especially radio too, because you, you, you want to work with other people. You want to make eye mm-hmm. contact. And, and it's funny how, you know, I'm sort of making eye contact with you, but it's through a screen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And businesses are still figuring out what to do about uh, remote working. Uh, in fact, companies that require employees to work more days in the office are growing at a slower rate than companies who offer more flexibility. It's kind of an interesting thing. Joe Constanz, a reporter for Bloomberg News, joined CBS News to talk about this trend. Right. So we have new data out uh, just this week that looked at how uh, recruitment was impacted by the number of days in the office companies are requiring. And it's showing that companies that require more days in the office are growing at a slower rate, um, especially those companies that require five days uh, in the office. Um, And so that is just some preliminary evidence to show that you know, again, workers really value their flexibility that they um, got during the pandemic, and um, that's just continuing. And you remember when uh, COVID started, all of a sudden people say, well, go to Zoom, download Zoom and go to Zoom. And I'd never heard of Zoom before. No, me neither. And uh, even uh, it's now part of like day-to-day life and then i remember when south park made their post-covid special where they theorized what the world would be like in 20 years when covid is finally over as part of the joke one of the first images in that special is the zoom headquarters burnt to the ground (laughs) (laughs) yeah because i mean zoom all of a sudden that's all you needed uh you needed a comfy chair and zoom yeah and uh if you look up ironic in the dictionary Uh, You may soon find this. Uh, This is kind of ironic. Zoom, the company Zoom, that thing that you stare into the computer when you have your meetings, uh, that company has ordered all of its employees back to the office. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, okay. The firm said it uh, believed a structured hybrid approach was most effective and people living within 50 miles 
of an office should work in person at least twice a week. Yeah. I mean, I like that idea, you know, like a couple times a week instead of five days a week or zero days a week. Yeah. I, I think the hybrid model for not every job, definitely not, but for a lot of, uh, of, of careers is going to be the normal for at least like five years while we really figure out how much of this we want to do. I think it's fair to want to ask your employees to come back and to, to interact and to even just look at the data and see if how much of a production change there is uh, from the home to the office, if having the split is increases productivity, like there's a lot of math and science that needs to happen with all of this stuff. I still three years later. Yeah. And there's a lot of issues that there's sort of uh, issues that aren't really obvious. These sort of psychological mental health issues of working at home, especially if you're in a home with other people and all of a sudden you're working at home and maybe the kitchen becomes the place where the Zoom meetings happen. And uh, I, I know this from personal experience. I'll go to the kitchen to get something out of the fridge and all of a sudden I'm in a meeting and I, you know, it, it, it's not my meeting, but I still want to get something out of the fridge. Um, but Zoom at one point said staff would be able to work remotely indefinitely. And they said the new policy would be rolled out in August and September on a staggered timeline that, uh, that varied by country. According to the BBC, this is uh, kind of surprising or not surprising. I mean, Zoom's shares are worth about 68 bucks a piece. 68 bucks. But at the peak of COVID, October 2020, uh, they were worth more than 500 bucks. It's wild. Yeah. But I guess, you know, when Zoom happened, it, I, I can't think of a, of a piece of technology that had taken the world by storm that quickly as Zoom. Yeah. And I think uh, another thing that's for, forgotten is uh, the, the, dropping the ball because before zoom what did everybody call video chats skype yeah even if you didn't use skype yeah you i'm gonna skype you i'm going to video call you i have not used skype since i was in grade 11 which was like 10 years ago uh so i don't know what happened there and i don't know where zoom came from but i'm happy they were there because it was super useful during covid and i still use it to this day for the shift and long distance dates with my partner. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and I think people still say Skype, but I don't think but yeah, nobody does uses anybody Skype. use it? Yeah. Very <laughs> interesting. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 